And first, is it true that botanical science is suitable only for genteel women and for punks? What a shocking evergreen prejudice. First, the botany. Prepare to be shocked. Is botany a suitable study for young men? Asked the highly influential journal Science in 1887. A dodgy question to ask so close to International Women's Day. We'll come to that another time. As for being a punk, the answer's yes, because that's what renowned botanist Tim Entwistle calls himself. Equally shocking is his willingness to suggest, along with Robert Desay, that great botanical gardens do not resemble the Garden of Eden. So make no mistake about it. What was beckoning me from beyond St Anthony's spires and domes was nothing less than the recreation of paradise. But I turned away. I didn't go. I just sat there with my cappuccino and I thought glumly about how I didn't believe in Edenic visions or regained innocence. Nor did I believe that the Autobotanico, Botanic Garden, had much to do with nature. It was a book about nature, an encyclopaedia of nature, not nature itself. Tim Entwistle, reading from his own book, Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Punk, denying Eden, denying true nature, gardens as artefacts. Tim has been director of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne for some years, but is soon to step down. And here he conjures with the history of some of the famous gardens in the world. I read those words by Robert Deze in April 2008 on a train from Venice to Milan, a slow train with plenty of time for reading and reflection. The day before, I too had sat in Padua after a 30-minute train trip from Venice. Like the author-narrator in Deze's Night Letters, I saw the tomb of St Anthony beneath the spires and domes. Unlike him, I crossed the road to visit the oldest botanic gardens in the world, Auto Botanico di Padova. Inside the reconstructed original stone wall sits a charming circular garden with a segmented medicinal bed dating back to 1545. On my visit, children were studying with their teachers and scribbling down botanical and common names from the plant labels. Outside the circle, other children frolicked, shaded by trees planted in the 16th and 17th centuries. A 400-year-old European fan palm, Camerops humulus, observed and written about by Goethe in the late 18th century, was secured within its own multi-storey glasshouse. Busts of the ancient Greek philosopher and botanist Theophrastus and other botanical luminaries punctuated the softly manicured landscape, and a super-large magnifying glass was placed above the leaf of a sundew, Drosser, so you could see its glistening glandular hairs. Not a recreation so much as a gateway to paradise. It was the Paduans, as Deze writes, who conceived of the first truly modern botanical garden, a garden which, now that the whole world was known, could reflect both the wondrous breath of God's creation and its order, both at the same time. There is some debate about whether the concept of a botanic garden applied in the ancient world. There were gardens in the Lyceum in Athens, where Aristotle and his students would grow and examine plants for the study of natural history. These were gardens of learning, but not of labelled plants and not what we call today ornamental horticulture. 
To me, the earliest true botanic gardens are those associated with the schools of medicine in 16th century Italy. The first of these was on the other side of the peninsula, in Pisa. Although established in 1544, it was moved twice over the next 50 years, leaving the botanic garden opposite St Anthony's in Padua as the oldest surviving botanic garden in its original location. Followed closely by the about-to-be-by-me maligned Garden of Florence, opened later in the same year, 1545. A 1587 garden in the Dutch city of Leiden was perhaps the first to fully extend its scientific reach beyond a medicinal garden, but to argue it was the first modern or true botanic garden is mere sophistry. Desai picked the right botanic garden to prod. The protagonist in Night Letters sees across the road a book he has already leafed through more than once. Moreover, in his mind, as Desa puts it, botanical gardens aren't really gardens at all, of any kind. They somehow contrive to be neither orchards, nor flower gardens, nor kitchen gardens, nor physic gardens, nor even parks. They're static. Nothing's happened. No flowers are being picked, no fruits eaten, no medicines boiled up, there's no one picnicking or admiring the view. It's a museum, not a garden. Paradise was never a museum. And so, in the manner of Samuel Pepys, returns to his bed, Dese returns to Venice. Gardens Botanic My visit to Padua was at the start of a seven-week holiday in Europe with my wife Linda, part of a three-month break from my job as director of Sydney's Royal Botanic Garden. It was time to recharge and refresh, but also to do a little writing, if I could find the inspiration. In the prospicient timescale of botanic gardens, I was, after four years, still a newbie in my job. My best-known accomplishment so far was a chainsaw massacre of fig trees in Sydney's domain. I was doing regular radio interviews and publishing occasional pieces of writing about plants and gardens, but this was at the start of my career as a botanic garden director, early enough to not be obsessed with legacy, but late enough to be a little cocky about the importance and value of botanic gardens. By 2008, I'd been working in botanic gardens continuously for 18 years plus another nine months during a gap year in my university studies. In Padua, I was being tested not by an oracle, but by a novelist. And I was up for the challenge. I had plenty of time on my hands, both on the slow train to Milan, as well as over the weeks ahead. It was a chance to take stock and return to Sydney better equipped to spruik the wonders and wherefores of a botanic garden. First, of course, I questioned the facts and the logic. That's what scientists do. We've all picnicked in one of our gorgeous Australian botanic gardens, so while it may not happen in Europe, where even walking on the grass is discouraged, it does happen. As for views and vistas, let me just list one. In Cape Town, the unforgettable spectacle of the morning sun on Table Mountain seen from Kirstenbosch Botanic Garden. A museum... Well, my friends in the museum world are jealous of me because a botanic garden display changes each day as flowers open and leaves turn, and because every sense is engaged when you walk through our gate. Museum-like at times, but far more than that. 
I will grant the author his point about botanic gardens generally not being produce gardens, although later that same year I did eat a botanic garden. It was near Seoul in the Republic of Korea, and the director of the private Hantech Botanical Garden treated us to a meal of leaves and flowers picked fresh from his property. As for God's creation, I'm not qualified to talk to that, but I can say every botanic garden I've visited so far has a very different objective, mostly allied to intrinsic beauty, science or conservation. Earlier in Night Letters, Desé writes about how we now seek paradise in untouched wilderness rather than, as he puts it, in the miniature mirroring of God's perfection. In Australia, he notes, the Garden of Eden is sought in the rainforests of far north Queensland and the deserts of central Australia, not in the raw botanic gardens of Melbourne, however idyllic they may be. Now, having moved from Melbourne to Sydney six years earlier, I was disappointed with this adverse comparison to my old workplace. In any case, again, I would admit Desai has a point of sorts. It's true that nature devoid of overt Western influence, to try to be precise with my words, is considered more Edenic or natural these days than a Western construct such as a botanic garden. In this sense, a botanic garden is more like an art gallery or museum or library, yet it is, or at least can be, much more than all of them. The problem, as I saw it on the way to Milan, was our ability in the botanic garden world to express why we existed, particularly in the 21st century, other than as an historical curiosity. That was my takeaway from reading that chapter of Night Letters. None of us running botanic gardens thought we were recreating Gardens of Eden. Beautiful places, for sure, but not some kind of utopian garden free of weeds and sin. The plants in a botanic garden do more than provide a bountiful or beautific backdrop. I wanted to unravel this further and find ways to express it through my own botanic garden in Sydney. To capture the essence of a botanic garden, if I could, then preach that message from my pulpits, in radio, in magazines, and through the design and planning of botanic gardens. And the influence of these public institutions should extend well beyond their fences into the planning of urban green spaces and through to the care and protection of nature across our precious planet. Clearly, there was much to do. Tim Entwistle, reading from his new book, Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Plant Punk. And he doesn't look anything like a punk on the cover. Tim steps down in July as director of the Royal Botanic Gardens of Victoria after a proud stint. And he was also director of the Sydney Gardens, where this month a new exhibition opens, On the Edge, shining a light on species at risk artworks of marvellous originality, including a pygmy possum made from leaves and moss. That's the exhibition on the edge, which opens on March the 17th.